Good. Why don't we get started? Hi, I'm Jeffrey Hunker again. And one of the joys of uh, dealing in cybersecurity is that um, I liken it in a lot of ways to a prism where you have the substance, which is the core of the prism, but depending on how you're turning it, the, the prism, you get different reflections and different views in, into the interior. And we're going to start a panel today that's taking a different, yet another perspective on um, the issues of our symposium, and, and that is day-to-day uh, -day cybersecurity. And the charge for this panel is, is um, quite simple and straightforward, and I'll just quote. What are the appropriate roles and relationships for private actors and public authorities in securing the everyday operations of critical systems and the protection of information? Um, I'm pleased to say that we have three really, I think, interesting groups of people. And I say groups of people because um, we have uh, Kristen Goodwin and also Paul Nicholas, who are jointly representing Microsoft today. Um, and we have Michelle Kwan, who I've known for quite some time, uh, who did was at the U.S. CERT uh, and then subsequently at RSA, and I believe now has... Uh, in, in private practice, but represents sort of a, a range of experiences. And similarly, also to my uh, right, uh, to your left, uh, we have Mark McCarthy, who was um, at Visa in a very senior position and is now at, is it Georgetown? At Georgetown. Um, and I think, therefore, both brings what I like uh, is both the operational and um, the academic perspective, just as others on this panel also have had varied careers and bring different perspectives, which I think is important as we think about this sort of public-private partnership. So with that, um, Michelle? So I, I think this is, I'm hoping this will be a little bit different rhetoric than you've heard um, or think about when you think about a public-private partnership. A um, couple of things. Um, I, I'm going to talk about the two groups as public sector and private sector. And, um, and I'm going to talk about them as being very, very different. And to me, that's an emotional and a behavioral position. Because in reality, all of us who are technicians know that there's no difference between the systems in the public sector and the private sector. And there's little difference in the attacks in the public sector and the private sector. So I'd like you to keep that in the back of your mind as you hear some of my whining and some of my complaining uh, about public-private uh, partnerships and about some of the problems and possibly some of the solutions. Uh, keep in the back of your mind that the problems today are not technical problems. The problems today are human problems. And human problems are often the hardest problems to solve. So with that, when we talk about public-private part partnership, I think uh, saying that it's a hard problem is probably an understatement considering the very high expectation for altruistic behaviors that we're expecting of these two groups 
if you think about it, the two groups have extremely opposite agendas. Um, there's lots of hand-waving about public-private partnership, but we haven't exactly defined what that is. We have pockets of definition, and we have times of strife where we come together and fall into a successful public-private partnership, but we're constantly trying to define um, one model, one definition that works for all cases. And being humans and being a human problem, uh, that's really making the problem hard. Um, knowing very little about each other is a significant problem in public-private partnership. Um, private sector companies know very little about what the government or individual agencies do or entities that they're dealing with as the private sector, uh, public sector has little understanding of the private sector, having been in both sectors. Um, private sector has a very strong duty to make money, to uh, report to their board, to keep their stock prices elevated. A very, very, very driven mission for this. And public sector has their own individual missions, whether it be a law enforcement mission, whether it be an aid mission, whether it be a monetary issue mission, uh, lots of different missions. And often uh, understanding each other's positions uh, is part of, the, part of the problem. So without having a clear definition of what they're supposed to do and not having an understanding of who the other is makes it really hard to have a relationship. It's really hard to be married to someone that you don't know. And it's really hard to be married to someone when you don't know what the rules of the house are. If, uh, if your husband leaves his clothes on the floor every night and that's, not, and that's illegal and you haven't told him so, it's really hard to stay married. So <clears throat> I think, um, I think I, I'm just going to start that way. And, and I really pose several questions here for, for myself in knowing um, where I've treaded into some ills and some problems. And, you know, in defining a public-private pri partnership, um, the question begs to, off to say, why do we need a partnership? And, you know, you'll hear both sides talk and you'll hear that they both think that they're smarter than each other and that they know how to do this better and the other is more capable than the other and the other knows more about the threat than the other and the other is smarter just generally and has better people. You'll hear that argument from both sides. And the long and the short of it is we need to do this because we live in a shared environment. We use the same stuff and therefore we need to be able to help each other clean up this stuff and help each other stay out of trouble. It's a really simple reason why we have to have this. Um, and it's really clear, it must be really clear that we have to understand the other partner. We have to understand that there are operators in both sides of the fence. There are operators on the private side and there are operators on the government side. The government is not solely here for regulation 
and the government isn't solely here for policy and legislation. The government isn't solely here uh, as a military force. Um, there are mission owners in the government that run their networks just like private sectors run their networks. So reducing the problem from not just a federal problem in figuring out what the legislation and the rules and the policies are, uh, not just a military action, but also looking at as uh, mission space owners, both private and public sector, living together, I think is really important. And sometimes we forget that. Um, we also talk a lot about uh, risk, and we talk a lot about uh, assessing the risk and who should assess it, who should, who has information. And the reality of it is both sides have information. You can now buy information uh, from vendors that is just as, uh, just as quality as some information that comes in a classified format and often is the same information. So thinking that just the DOD or just the intel community houses all of the good cyber information uh, is a true fallacy. Um, we have to understand that it's the same information buzzing around on the web and it's not classified when it's doing that. <laughs> so um, it, it, there's access to understanding the threats and the attacks uh, to anyone. Uh, but that being said, for a company that's not buying intelligence and not privy to uh, classified information, they may be hurting for information. And without information, you can't assess your risk. You have to have the information. In addition, you can't assess your risk if you don't know your mission space. And so I find it uh, quite humorous often when I hear people saying that someone else is going to do the risk assessment besides the mission owner themselves. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, I'll take that point at hand a little bit. Um, so I think at that point we have to, to more clearly define why we want this public-private partnership. Are we doing it uh, for big global reasons? Are we doing it to jointly defend our networks, to support an early watch and warning? Uh, to be a community of mitigation, uh, to research ways to do this better. I, I feel like when I see a framework, before I buy into that framework, I need to have some definition as to why we have the framework. Um, so I think uh, separating a public-private partnership off into a cyber framework and defining the objectives uh, would please me greatly. And, and help me move forward on it. Um, <clears throat> I think it's also important to understand the climates in each sector. You know, as I said, the private sector, um, they're bound to their boards, bound to their stock prices. They're bound to certain compliance and regulatory demands, and they're bound to their intellectual property. And the public, public sectors are bound to their missions. Uh, they're bound to protect those missions and, and protect the public. Um, and in some ways, they're bound to power because they are the government. So understanding the climates and understanding that both climates are litigious is very important. Um, in, I, run, I have run many incidents, both in public and private sector 
uh, arenas. And I will guarantee you that there are just as many lawyers uh, in the war rooms on both sides of the fence uh, controlling every move of the release of information. Uh, a lot of the issues in, in sharing information uh, are, again, those people issues. They go to, it goes to reputation, goes to embarrassment. Uh, it's less about <clears throat> protecting their information because it's worth something and more about uh, the information being damaging. So I think that's, that's something to uh, keep in mind. I also think um, these two have conflicting uh, objectives in an incident. In an incident. Um, they have different lawyers and different leaders uh, and different success factors. And they have different things to protect. Um, one side may be monetarily protecting their companies and reputationally protecting their companies and the other may be protecting lives or something more serious than that. So I think it's also important to understand the press and how, what role the press plays in a public-private partnership, particularly in information sharing, and understanding um, the voyeur in, in the room and understanding the uh, inflammatory nature of a lot of the press and, and that being a lot of the reason why uh, much information isn't released uh, because, again, if we're looking at stock prices and boards, if we're looking at uh, success of a commander, uh, sharing information publicly and allowing it to go to the press uh, isn't, isn't going to happen. So I think um, looking at living in the same space and being d defensive together is, is often difficult, particularly when you look at the fact that you're trying to have a partnership with the person that regulates you or you're trying to have a partnership with the person that legislates you. I think that begins to make trust a very difficult thing. So this is a very complicated situation and, and I'm not going to just solely com complain about it. I think we need to take several steps. I think we need to look at how we talk to each other about cyber and be more familiar with each other and in doing that create a, a shared taxonomy, a language with a similar hierarchy where we can understand clearly uh, and share information clearly on a technical level uh, and determine what information is required for what purpose. Uh, we're not just going to information share, but what purposeful information sharing are we going to do? Are we going to share TTPs? Are we going to share attack patterns? Are we going to share <coughs> attribution information? What information is needed and what information can we share? What information can we share publicly without causing uh, stock price increases, uh, without rattling the press or, or making them even interested in what we're sharing? Uh, how can we do that in a, in a productive manner uh, that gets the technical job done that has nothing to do uh, with inflammatory statements? Um, I think it's important that we take this discussion out of the crisis because you'll find that we do our best, uh, our most of our discussion when we're in the crisis, uh, when we're in an incident. Um, there are always a gaggle of lawyers 
and a gaggle of executives um, trying to recreate the incident response plan. And I think we need to get away from doing that and create policies and standards um, that we can follow uh, during an incident so that we're not doing that at the same time. I think that um, uh, partnership is sharing and it's not free. I think we have to understand that, that a public-private partnership does cost money and we have to set expectations to that. Sharing information is not inexpensive. Um, you don't just take a bunch of log data and dump it in somebody else's lap. It takes analysis, it takes putting together a report, it takes your analysts leaving the house, um, it, it takes money. So we have to set expectations on uh, what pub, uh, public private, private partnership, particularly in information sharing, uh, means. But does that mean it's not worth it? Does that mean there's no value to it? No, it's just we need to set our expectations uh, correctly. So with that, sure. I think I'm out of time anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Mark? So um, let me start with uh, 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 disclosure and, and uh, disclaimer. The disclosure is that since uh, early February, I've taken on the responsibilities for uh, head of public policy for the, the Software and Information Industry Association uh, in, in Washington. Uh, and the disclaimer is that uh, my comments today do not represent necessarily the views of either SIAA or the, uh, uh, the member companies. Uh, so with that, um, uh, let me talk a little bit about the financial services uh, sector. I, uh, I think what I'm going to try to do uh, is provide some, uh, some raw material that will, will help to focus the discussion a little bit. Uh, the financial uh, service area it, it provides a, a very interesting case study for the proper role between government uh, and the private sector in, in this area. Uh, financial information, of course, is very attractive to thieves. Uh, the sector is, is pervasively regulated and it's examined by, by financial regulators on a, almost on a daily basis. Uh, there are existing federal security rules on the, on the books uh, that impose specific process duties on financial services companies. Uh, and financial regulatory agencies have, have exercised this authority in various ways uh, from uh, imposing certain uh, uh, more robust security procedures in the case of online uh, uh, banking uh, to using the, the, the industry's uh, payment card industry data security standard uh, as, a, uh, as a standard of best practices uh, and as a basis for their judgments about what reasonable security in the area is. So, uh, so what, what, what's the legitimate role for government in this area? The paper suggests that um, there's a range of legitimate roles. I mean, one is to uh, autonomously let the industry develop its own way forward in this area. Um, uh, a further way is to um, actively encourage the development of, uh, of specific security uh, procedures. Uh, generally, uh, government should refrain from setting specific security requirements. Um, this can freeze innovation. It can lock in less effective security measures. And it can, can prevent the, the development of, of compensating controls that are, that are equally effective but less costly. Um, however, a key role should be to assist the industry to move to higher levels uh, of, uh, of security uh, by overcoming the various coordination problems in an industry that, that prevent it from naturally moving uh, in, uh, in that direction. So uh, that's the overall theme. I want to talk about three different uh, uh, case studies. 
Uh, one is the development of the payment card industry data security standard. Uh, the, uh, there were some uh, industry uh, issues that caused the development of that standard. Uh, and then I want to talk about the use of that standard uh, by the Federal Trade Commission in enforcement procedures um, and uh, uh, an attempt to, to move it into state law in the, in the state of, of Minnesota. Uh, the second case study uh, involves online banking. Uh, I want to look a little bit about, at the, uh, what, what the online banking uh, uh, regulators uh, uh, did in that area. And the third uh, case study is uh, the public-private uh, partnership in Europe that, that moved uh, the industry there towards uh, the adoption of, of smart card technology. Um, so let me start with, with the payment card uh, uh, data security standard. Uh, in, in, the, in that context, the, 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 the payment card world uh, is um, composed of, of, of actually a, a lot of different sectors. The, the financial services world is certainly part of it. Uh, and as I mentioned, they're, they're, they're pervasively regulated. There are specific security standards in the area. There's a tradition of keeping financial information safe and secure. Uh, if your banker isn't treating your information in a confidential fashion, you tend to want to find another banker. Um, uh, and uh, in addition, there's a, uh, there's a, a set of uh, liability rules in the payment uh, uh, card world uh, that creates a huge incentive for the financial industry to um, step up for higher levels of security. Uh, when uh, the, the U.S. Congress looked at this issue back in the 1970s, uh, they said that if, uh, if something goes wrong with a payment, if there's unauthorized use of a payment card, uh, the industry cannot put the liability uh, for that unauthorized use on the cardholder. The liability rested somewhere else in the, in the financial services industry. Uh, and that resulted over time in an enormous incentive uh, for the industry to control fraud losses. They, they, they had to pay those fraud losses. They couldn't pass them on. Uh, to cardholders. Um, but those incentives for, for good security don't exist at the edges of the financial services uh, world, at the edges of the, of the payment system. The, um, the, the merchants, uh, the, the, the processors are, are generally not part of the, the regulated financial services world. Um, and the liability rules set up by the industry uh, create a, a perverse incentive for underinvestment in security. If, if um, uh, a merchant or a processor is hacked, uh, the, uh, the, the, the losses associated with that hack don't fall on the merchant or processor. They're distributed elsewhere in the system, essentially to the, to the financial institution that, um, that issued the card. And so if a merchant or processor is facing the internal question, should I spend more on preserving the integrity and safety and security of cardholder information, uh, just doing a straight internal cost-benefit analysis, they don't face the kind of financial incentive to move toward greater levels of security uh, that other parts of the payment card world do. Uh, the payment card industry data security standard was an attempt to resolve that externality. Uh, it was an attempt to say, uh, as a matter of contractual requirement, that if you're going to continue to be part of the payment system world, you have to live up to certain requirements, and those requirements were established uh, by the industry over a period of four or five years, uh, 2001 to 2005. Uh, there are uh, 12 rules backed by about 300 pages of details, uh, which can be um, assessed by an outside assessor. So if you're uh, in, in the payment processing business, um, your compliance with the PCI 
uh, standard uh, can be objectively assessed by an outside assessor. Um, I'll give you an example of one of the rules that they put in place specific to the payment service world. Um, uh, payment card information for authentication is static. So uh, it's your, your cardholder information and it's a, it's a security code that's uh, embodied in the magnetic stripe. Uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the conversion of uh, many of the merchant uh, and uh, 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 terminals and, and, and devices for processing payments from uh, uh, the older systems to the newer systems that can store information and integrate a cash register with the data um, uh, storage and processing centers of a merchant. Uh, the point of, of sale um, of software that was distributed to the merchants uh, all came with a default, and the default was to save all of the information associated with the transaction. Why not? You might be able to use it in some fashion. So what that did is to save automatically the cardholder information and the secret security code. Those were then stored in databases. Uh, if hackers got hold of that information, they could make counterfeit cards, and with those counterfeit cards, they could commit fraud anywhere in the world. So they created this enormous uh, set of databases that were attractive <coughs> to hackers. Um, one of the rules set down by PCI uh, data security standard is don't save that security code and don't use software that automatically saves that, that, that security code. Um, so that's what the industry did. Compliance, um, it's by contract. Um, if, uh, if, if an entity isn't uh, in compliance with this, they suffer uh, uh, financial penalties from the payment card systems. Um, compliance has been edging up over the years. It started off at a low rate. The latest figures from the industry show about 90% compliance among the large merchants uh, in the United States and the rest of the world is about 70%. Uh, so you might think that the, one of the lessons of this is that the, the industry can autonomously take care of itself. Uh, but uh, there are a couple of um, uh, other features that we uh, want to talk about that, that, that indicate that that's not the proper lesson. Uh, and that turns to the, uh, the use of the, the PCI standard by the Federal Trade Commission uh, as a standard of, of what reasonable security is. Uh, since about 2005, the FTC has brought maybe 20 cases in this area. And uh, they've used their unfairness authority uh, to go after merchants and processors uh, who have failed to provide adequate security. Um, when they do this, they, they say you've got to live up to a security pro program uh, uh, for the next 20 years, you've got to get assessments and so on, uh, mimicking essentially some of the requirements of the PCI standard. Uh, but also in assessing what went wrong, uh, they look at the, what the practices of the, 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 the hacked entity uh, was and they look at, uh, compare those practices uh, to what's required by the, the, the industry standard. When they find a discrepancy, they say, you've acted in a fashion that isn't adequate security. It, what you've done is not a reasonable level of security because it's out of compliance with the, uh, the well-known and well-established industry standard in the area. Uh, it is hard to avoid the conclusion that the dramatic improvement in, in compliance with the PCI standard between 2006 and 2010 was due in part, at least, to the FTC's efforts uh, in, in that area. Uh, the second level illustrates a, a way that of, of government involvement which is less attractive. Um, uh, the state of Minnesota uh, essentially uh, codified an element of the, of the PCI standard. They took that requirement not to save the security code uh, and made it a state requirement. Uh, and, and, and then 
on top of that, they created a new cause of action. If a, a financial services company uh, was aggrieved by a breach that involved the saving of this, the security code, uh, they could have, they had a, ca a cause of action to go against the merchant that was breached, um, and uh, uh, and and ask for recovery of damages. Uh, the uh, so that financial institutions in those kind of contexts would have card reissuing costs or fraud losses or notification costs or whatever. Uh, and if, if they could uh, go to court and indicate that those fraud losses were somehow related to a breach and that that breach was related to the uh, saving of this uh, security code, they would be able to recover those, those damages. Um, that, that strikes me as, a, as a, a bad direction for government policy to go in. Uh, it turns the entire set of issues over to state court judgments of what uh, was involved in a particular breach. Just, just think about the kind of questions that could be raised in litigation in that context. They would start with, what breach? Uh, often the foren forensic evidence doesn't uh, show very strongly that uh, there was an actual breach. Uh, sometimes there was a breach, but it wasn't the fault of the, of the merchant, it was the processor. Uh, and then show, show that the, uh, the, the fraud losses were, were related to that breach. Often cards are subject to breaches at many locations. Um, and finally, the expenditures of financial institutions to try to mitigate the possible damage. They're largely under the control of the financial institution. Uh, prove that they were absolutely necessary in order to, uh, to recover the damages. Uh, th that suggests to me that any attempt to resolve those issues in the courts will ultimately just get bogged down. It wouldn't be a productive way to, way to proceed. So that strikes me as being a bad way for government to be in, involved in, uh, in, in this. So let, let me stop there on, on the PCI data security standard uh, and talk briefly uh, about the federal banking regulators' attempt to, to move the industry to a higher level of security in the, in the area of, uh, of online banking. Uh, in online banking, this is you know, in the early 2000, 2001, um, there were an enormous increase in, in phishing attacks. Uh, it, it was pretty well known that, that uh, the, the, the security measures that were being taken at that point by, by the banking institutions were inadequate. They all relied on, on uh, single static passwords as a way of, uh, of authenticating someone who came to his, to his online account. Um, but uh, they, they were stuck. The, the industry couldn't move on its own to a more reliable two-factor authentication. It would involve, uh, you know, uh, customers carrying around an extra token. Uh, it would involve, uh, for every financial account that you had, you'd have to have a, a different set of tokens. Uh, and any financial institution that automatically tried to move its retail customers to that higher level of security it would begin to lose its customers. They would go somewhere else uh, where they didn't have that kind of inconvenience. So the industry was stuck. Uh, the regulators stepped in in that context and said, what do we need to do um, they put out a public notice, took comment, uh, discussed the issue with the industry. Uh, and initially their, uh, their inclination was to try to overcome the problem by mandating two-factor authentication. Then there wouldn't be that sort of race to the bottom problem. Uh, but uh, after taking public comment, they decided to do something a little bit more moderate and much more reasonable. What, what they decided to do was to say that the, the current level of security was inadequate. You could not simply say, uh, as your level of security, uh, a single um, a static password. Um, you had to do something else. They suggested maybe two-factor authentication, but it wasn't the one that was required. And what this resulted in with the industry was a, a sort of burst of, of, uh, of innovation. You started to see these little pictures that would appear on the genuine sites. Uh, uh, there was device authentication that was put in place so that 
if you logged on to your, uh, your, your bank with, uh, from a, a device that wasn't your typical advice, there would be a series of, of prearranged questions that you would have to answer to authenticate that it was you. Um, so the industry moved away from uh, its uh, static level of security to a, a more effective level of security, not because of a mandate to do this versus that, but because of a, a, a decision on the part of the regulators that the current level of security was inadequate and you had to go to a higher level. The, the third example comes from, uh, from, uh, from Europe where they moved beyond the, the idea of just saying the current level is no good and they gave a, a pretty good nudge uh, to the industry to move in a specific direction. Um, in late 1990s, uh, security issues in the, uh, in the European banking world were, uh, uh, were beginning to deteriorate. The fraud rates were, were getting to be pretty high. Uh, and the industry uh, and the regulators sat down, uh, and after a series of negotiations and discussions, uh, uh, they jointly agreed that the way forward was to move the entire industry towards smart cards. <coughs> smart cards have the advantage that uh, in, uh, in, in, in setting out uh, uh, an authentication procedure, they were, they were, they were capable uh, of, of uh, generating new authentication information every single time. And, and what that meant uh, was that uh, it didn't really matter if the authentication information that was used for a specific transaction was saved or not. Because even if it was saved uh, and made available to hackers, they couldn't use it again for a second transaction. So smart cards avoided the problem of databases being hacked because that information was no longer attractive to the hackers. It couldn't be used for fraudulent purposes a second time. Uh, over a period of about 10 years, uh, the industry in, uh, in Europe uh, moved from magnetic stripe to smart cards. Uh, the compli compliance rate is uh, somewhere around 70 to 80 percent. Uh, at cards, it's about 90 percent at ATM machines. Uh, and the counterfeit fraud rates have plummeted. So the, 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 the advantage of moving in, in, uh, in that direction uh, are, are, uh, are plain. Uh, and I think that, that creates a possible lesson for, for us in the United States. Uh, if we're going to be moving to a higher level of security in the United States in the payment card world, <coughs> Uh, I think one of the things we might want to look at uh, is the kind of joint public-private partnership that works so well uh, in Europe. It can help to overcome any of the coordination difficulties that exist in the industry. Uh, it is possible to move to that higher level of security in the, the payment card world. Uh, costs have been estimated at uh, about $13 billion, a payback period of maybe five, five years in terms of fraud reduction. Uh, but the distribution of the costs and benefits doesn't quite go with the uh, uh, the, the way you'd like it. So there is a distributional issue that needs to be uh, addressed and the regulators can step in uh, and, and, and look at that issue and see if they can resolve that, uh, that issue, moving the entire industry to a higher level of security. Let me stop there. Uh, I hope that these three examples have provided some, some examples for further discussion on the, the proper role of government and, and, uh, and the, at least the financial services in the area of, of information security. Thank you. And our third group, or third entity here, in the spirit of partnership, uh, will be from Microsoft, and we'll have uh, Kristen Goodwin and uh, Paul Nichols, and um, so trade on. Terrific. Well, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, uh, 
we're very excited to be here. Uh, Peter, Tegan, uh, Jasmine, we'd like to thank you for organizing such a such a such an exciting uh, panel discussion and, and seminar and symposium on on, on this important issue. Um, I have the good fortune of being here with uh, Kristen, my both my good friend and my attorney. Um, uh, we've worked together, I think, uh, since 19. <laughs> my good friend and my attorney. We um, we've worked together uh, since 1999 on a whole series of operational issues uh, that have spanned public-private sector uh, challenges in national security and emergency preparedness issues and. Uh, it's been a, a, a really exciting period. For the past five years, we've both been at Microsoft working on issues related to trustworthy computing and dealing with basically a, a billion desktops around the world. And what, what does that mean when you're dealing with cyber, cyber, uh, cyber attacks and things like that? And so what we'd like to do is sort of talk about public-private partnership, but frame it from a perspective of private sector governance, government strategy and cyber conflict, uh, which is really a challenge of shared domains and differing priorities. When you think about the conduct of organized cyber conflict or uh, complex digital criminal attacks or sustained digital influence campaigns at a, at a national level or even the conduct of, of warfare in cyberspace, uh, countries around the world see this as a top national security concern today. Uh, in 2009, there were 27 different countries that had detailed critical infrastructure protection plans. By 2011, you're upwards around probably about 50 countries that are actually working on pretty detailed cybersecurity strategies from a national level perspective. Um, and as Jeffrey mentioned earlier today, many of them have a public-private partnership component to them. That's really challenging for, a f for several reasons. One hey, public-private partnerships really important. They are a key way to get things done, and they're really effective. But they're also really fragile, and they break easily because they're built on trust. And they also don't always scale, and they, have, can, they can be challenging to sustain. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what makes some of this, this whole issue uh, challenging from a public-private sector perspective. First, we've had a sustained growth of uh, new users and new devices uh, since the year 2000 and new requirements. And when I say requirements, I mean new requirements for vendors, for infrastructure operators, for governments, and for users. Uh, we've gone from basically 250 million Internet users in the year 2000 to over 2 billion today. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And the shift to uh, mobile access, even greater. Um, but all of that has created different perspectives, as you know, I think Michelle pointed out earlier, and how people see the challenge. Uh, first of all, you know, some people see it as, hey, this is a great innovation and in technology, excitement. Governments see it as, wow, this is a dynamic threat landscape. Uh, but attackers see it as, wow, this is an expanding attack surface. And the most dangerous place on the Internet today is often that two feet between the user and the keyboard. And if you look behind me here, you'll see this sort of timeline of progression from, you know, the, the late 80s uh, in, into the future where we look at how cyber threat has changed. And, you know, some of you were not born probably when some of this began. If you look at, at 86, I, I, I sort of call that revenge of the nerds. You know, this is where you, you, it was really exciting when you stopped playing Atari and you could build a virus that could move around on a floppy disk. 
Uh, you can look that up in the library. Um, and by 1995 to 2000, this thing called the Internet had come along, and you could build things that could go around the world, and hey, wasn't that cool. But from 2000 to 2007, something really interesting happened. People started to build hybrid attacks, and you could make money. And from 2007 on, things got really targeted and really sophisticated, and people started to get really rich and really good at building attacks. And what that meant for um, the challenge in the public-private partnership is the challenge of the shared domain. Uh, Jeffrey mentioned earlier security is getting worse. I, I would take sort of a slightly different spin on that, and I would say the implications of bad security are getting worse. Because, uh, as I mentioned before, more and more people rely on ICT, and they're more and more dependent on it. And when you have that breakdown, the effect is much bigger and stronger. So let's talk a little bit about the, the shared domains and some of the differing priorities that we see in the Internet. You know, one of the, the interesting things about, about governments is that uh, when you're looking at terms of Internet users, they're so small. Uh, you know, what we see every, every month in Microsoft space is that we're cleaning malware off of uh, consumers' computers who have consented to allow us to do this 600 million times every month. And so uh, it's a pretty staggering thing when you look at the footprint of the Dep Department of Defense and they've got, you know, a million to a million and a half seats and we're touching a billion people. When you're thinking about cybersecurity, when you think about it from the private sector perspective, you're thinking about it at scale, and at a scale that you just don't see when you're talking about an enterprise. Um, so when you start to think about this shared domain, you know, where we all provide services and products that run on top of the same network infrastructure all around the world. And so uh, the, the same uh, links, the same cables, that run from, uh, uh, you know, TAT14 from, from, from uh, the UK over to France or uh, from the United States to, uh, to Japan have virtual private networks of uh, Ohio State and for uh, CSC Corporation and Microsoft and a, and a myriad of other entities. And so we're all on that same shared infrastructure. So uh, if I can use PowerPoint correctly here. Uh, one of the fascinating things about this is that you start to think about what are the needs of those differing domains, those differing groups on that same infrastructure from, as Michelle pointed out, those same products and services and, and routers. You know, the, the government looks to uh, govern, it looks to tax, it looks to, to defend, and it, it uses the Internet to, to uh, secure itself and, uh, to, to, and it sets its own broad policies and priorities. In the private sector, we may be operating power plants, water treatment systems, airports, hospitals, uh, uh, wireless systems, and we're, we're looking to make money. We're setting the rules of engagement through contracts and through terms of service. And so the private sector mode of governing uh, is through its, its ability to bind customers through, through legal terms and conditions. Consumers are using the Internet for entertainment, for organization of your, your, your life's information, for, for the establishment of community. And hackers and, and, and those who want to, uh, to use the Internet for their own purposes actually have their own economy here, and we spend time thinking about the economics of, of cybercrime and, and how to disrupt that. And so one of the challenges that it, it creates for us as we're thinking about scale and the fact that we're all using the same infrastructure is that uh, this is actually the first day I've had in, in probably a year where I've not yet heard the word cloud computing. But 
cloud is the microcosm of all of these problems in, in one single spot because you will now have in the same virtual infrastructure in a virtual server in a physical rack your home data, your work information, and uh, that of many, many other, other uh, uh, entities from all around the world. It's not just a, a U.S. problem. We've been very U.S. focused today. We operate in 160 countries around the world. And so, uh, you know, for those of you starting your, your, your uh, studies around choice of law and conflicts of law, huge challenge. So for us, it's not just a U.S. problem. It becomes actually a crisis and a crisis of governance. And so the lack of understanding of what governance means as it relates to the Internet creates huge challenges for us. And so I'll have Paul talk to that point a bit. One of the primary challenges that we've observed in governance is the challenge between what is complex versus what is complicated. And oftentimes, government approaches cybersecurity is a complex problem. World peace is a complex problem. It is really hard to solve it. Uh, complicated problems, like delivering humanitarian aid, can be broken down into digestible pieces and solved. Government with a capital G typically is not very good at complex problems. Certain elements of government are very good at complicated problems. The military is a classic example of that. They know how to build and deliver and execute a specific set of missions. Um, the private sector is also very good at complicated problems, knowing how to scope a problem and build toward a solution. Sometimes, uh, as Michelle noted, crisis can intervene and force a more rapid uh, uh, set of prioritization that allows government and private sector to collectively work together. But oftentimes, one of the big impediments in cybersecurity has been government coming to the private sector and saying, we want you to help us solve cybersecurity, and we want a public-private partnership. This is not just in the U.S. We, we, we go through this, as Kristen mentioned, in many different parts of the world. And uh, you feel like it's the same conversation over and over again. On this slide, I, you see the dark cloud representing complexity. But on the other side, there's, I'd like to highlight two areas where the government and the private sector have each, uh, uh, in one case, in a public-private partnership, dealt with a complicated problem. Uh, in uh, 2004, um, uh, Jay and I were uh, at, the, at the White House in the development of um, uh, HSPD-7, which sort of set the U.S. moving forward on a risk-based uh, approach to uh, critical infrastructure protection and cybersecurity. One of the outcomes of that was that each sector had to come up with a, a, a sector plan and a risk assessment. That worked really great for things like chemicals and energy plants. You, you kind of had a pattern you could go through. And then the Department of Homeland Security came to the IT sector and said, well, hello, IT sector, whatever that is. Uh, we'd like you to do a risk assessment. And we said, great. What, of what? Um, what is it that you're concerned about? And we went through this sort of complex no, or complicated negotiation coming up with... It was complex. <laughs> hey, here are six things that we think we could actually go out and collectively look at, model and understand what the risks are, and be able to then collectively make a decision. And so, you know, we took certain things like the DNS system. What is the value chain that delivers it? And you bring your experts, we'll bring ours. And we actually suffered through a, a series of exchanges so we finally came down to understanding what we both agreed was the general risk of a particular section. That was a success. 
In another case, the private sector realized, hey, the threat is changing. We can't go on with these things called ISACs. We actually need a different level of operational sharing. And you know what? It can't be tied to the U.S. Microsoft build patches, IBM builds patches, Cisco builds patches. What happens is we all move to shared protocols if we all release those at the same time and cancel each other out. Maybe we need a different way of sharing. And so we created this thing called ICASI, the Industry Consortium for Advancement of Security on the Internet. And it's a, a, a pretty amazing, very lightweight model that allows companies to share real world, no doubt, this is, this is serious stuff that we've got to deal with as a community and find a problem uh, or find a solution to. So when we start to think about you know, governance and, and what does that look like from an Internet perspective, uh, up on the screen I'm sharing the definition that was created through the United Nations, the World Society on Information Security. And one of the things that's so striking about this is that uh, while it takes a very global normative view, it doesn't take into account the challenge of jurisdiction quite as much as, as it needs to. Uh, where we're seeing the most significant activity worldwide are in the, the two tiers that I, I think uh, Professor Brennan really started to, to tease out, national security and law enforcement, you know, in part because those are the heads of the spears as governments struggle to understand what their national borders look like in a logical way, those are the two starting points. And so uh, it, it doesn't surprise anybody that the ITU Secretary General recently called for a Geneva Convention on cyber warfare and helping define that, that, uh, that, that scope, not only as it relates to governments, but as it relates to in particular, individuals and citizens and the, the, the infrastructures they touch. In the United States, we're seeing stronger movement around governing in its own space. FedRAMP is the, the new coming governance for the cloud. FISMA, for those of you who've struggled with that in the information IT management space. Uh, you know, the, the challenge for the private sector is that customers vote by click. They tell you what they're willing to sustain and what they're not willing to sustain. And, so I want to share with you a hypothetical that we deal with every day when we think about the cloud. So Microsoft has a data center in Ireland. Uh, we may have a French citizen who accesses that through hotmail.fr, and uh, he's on vacation in Japan where he uh, um, commits a crime. And then he travels to Germany, and then the German authorities take possession of him. And now we have law enforcement authorities from Japan and France and Germany all seeking information from Microsoft United States Corporation for data that's held in Ireland. Whose laws prevail? What do you do? And so as you start to think about the cloud and the fact that you have citizens of every jurisdiction commingled into, into data facilities around the world, and it's not just unique to us, it's any company that's offering cloud-based services. Um, conflict of laws becomes a, a much more significant challenge in the governance space. Uh, foreign countries are very, very focused on a Supreme Court case in the United States here, uh, uh, Bank of Nova Scotia, because of its ability to enable United States authorities to reach into foreign jurisdictions and gain access to information from, uh, from citizens and governments of other countries. If uh, um, you can establish a nexus, and ostensibly a U.S. company operating overseas is that nexus. So we're having significant debates about how will we govern the space. And so 
the, the challenge for, for us is as we look at solving this problem for 160 nations is that the private sector absolutely has to have a seat at the table. The reason we think it's important to have a seat at the table is uh, we were doing just a, a brief uh, scan of headlines getting ready for the conference. And just in the past two weeks, we've had this sort of steady drumbeat of, you know, uh, virtual, virtual war, a real threat, uh, you know, s significant intrusions in the EU, um, uh, foreign policy where, uh, where the, uh, 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 the uh, Japan nuclear issue meets cyber wars, and even um, the um, uh, testimony uh, from the Department of Defense about uh, uh, Pentagon uh, defenses against a cyber war being thin. Um, the reality is uh, that if anyone goes to war in cyberspace, they're going to go to war over a set of products and services that were built for and delivered by the private sector, in large part for the private sector. And that creates a different set of challenges that we haven't really faced before. Are we faced before, but we've We've done it in a very different way in a far-off land in a sort of a Cold War environment. Or, or, um, um, and we've got to rethink that. You know, when your life lives in the cloud or a data center somewhere and your memories are there and your finances are there, and a large part of your country's economic uh, development lives in that data center and the IP that generates and drives your economy lives there, are there restrictions in warfare? Where would you limit that? Uh, would you, um, would you stop, for example, if there was a way to put a marker in the DNS system for hospitals? You know, in a traditional conflict, you can put a red cross or a red crescent on a building and designate this as a medical facility. Uh, if you could do that through the domain name system, would countries respect that as this is a hospital operation, this is where health records and health services and vital human services live? And is, that, is, is there a discussion to be had in that space? Uh, we think it's time to, to balance the discussion so that it's not all about war and the conduct of war, but also how do we protect people and culture and communications in a time of conflict? So to, to start summing up, when we think about uh, the, the, the perspectives of the private sector in cybersecurity, we think about uh, the right of the computing public to have security of data. And we think about the rights of the computing public to have freedom from unreasonable search and seizure and freedom of identity and, and multiple identities uh, from a security context and to be free from attack or exploit. And what's, what's so fascinating is that when you juxtapose that against where we are now from a governance perspective, the private sector is creating a, a de facto and at times de jure form of governance through contracts and terms of service, but we haven't really seen the, the, the governments exercise their roles in this space. I mean, governments are really unique in that they can, they can tackle problems that the private sector can't always address. Basic research is something that isn't easily monetized in the private sector. We're much better at, at monetizing applied research and innovation and advancement. And so having government focus on governing and establishing those laws and, and the step below norms uh, that, that, that fall out in each of our countries so that we can actually build products and services and, and sell them in, in countries with some sense of, of harmonization is, is key. And it's, it's, it's truly lacking today. So to, to close, when, uh, when we think about what security means online from a private sector perspective, we recognize that 
the Universal Declaration on Human Rights does assert that, that persons have a right to security of person. And we have not yet spent enough time thinking about what that means from a digital perspective and, and how do we move those analogies into, the, uh, into the, the domain of the cyber world so that security takes its place along with uh, freedom of, of expression and, and privacy. So there, there's a significant amount of work that needs to be done. Uh, we're, we're optimistic at hearing some of the calls for a Geneva Convention on cyber warfare to help that conversation get rolling. But again, that's just one way of taking a very, very complex space and making it complicated. And so we're looking to the, to the folks of you guys in the, in the red seats back there who will be hitting your career strides in about 10 or 12 years to really drive these points home because by then it will be up to you guys to help lay that foundation of what will it mean to actually have jurisdiction and law in the Internet from a multi-country perspective. So we look forward to you coming to Microsoft in about 10 years. Thanks. Good. Thank you. Um, I think following the practice that we've uh, had in the previous panel, um, I'd like to open it up for questions and comments as well as discussion amongst the, uh, the panelists. And would you just please, <laughs> just, would you just please identify yourself for the sake of the, uh, the web uh, broadcasting? Turn it on. That's Greg No James CDT. There you go. I'm Center for Democracy and Technology. Um, quick, quick question, Kristen. Uh, on this conflict of laws issue, how important is the rather arbitrary location of the server where the data is held when it comes to what law applies? And um, imagine that you're a Tibetan peace activist in Columbus, Ohio. And it actually does matter to you whether your data is stored in China or in um, New York. Um, how do you protect yourself when the companies that are storing the data are multinational and have operations all over the world? Well, <laughs> I, I knew when you stepped up those would be hard questions. So w one of the, the, the challenges, I think, for those individuals is that at the moment, there are, there are no clear understandings of uh, how, how will the Chinese authorities attempt to pursue information. If it's located in the United States, American companies have the ability through ECBA to say that we're not able to provide that information. And that, that's a, the, the common defense, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, for, uh, for those of you folks who, who haven't spent time in that space. I, I think, Greg, that, that part of the challenge is that we haven't spent enough time talking about what this means. So many of these obligations are inculcated in terms of service that aren't always clear to, to users where data is located. Geolocation and, and what geolocation of, of data means from a cloud perspective in particular is incredibly difficult. And so I, I think we need to continue to work to evolve what that service means and, and how individuals get clarity into uh, how that will apply, but without enough clarity around how conflict of laws and choice of laws move from, from where you are in one country to another, will the law follow the person or will the law of where your data is pr uh, prevail? 
I don't think that's clear in, in U.S. courts. So I still think we have a long way to go before we have the level of, of certainty that would make someone at CDT or even at Microsoft happy. So, so Greg, I, I think um, one of the issues that you raise is the, the extent to which individuals can um, control where their data is stored. I mean, um, and one principle to think about is that uh, the, the cloud providers um, and, uh, and users of, of cloud computing facilities should be able to determine you know, uh, on their own what the best place for the data to be stored should be. Um, one of the difficulties is that there are constraints on the movement of data across borders. Some countries want to make sure that the data is stored there for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's um, to build up their own data processing uh, industries. Uh, sometimes it's so that they can get access to the information because it's stored locally. Uh, and I think a, a good posture for government uh, would be to promote the cross-border uh, transfer of, of information in a way that, that maximizes the freedom of the cloud providers and the cloud users to, to locate the information in the place that seems best to them. So I, my name is Miriam Bitter and I am a visiting professor here. And I was wondering, all of you are talking a lot about government and uh, corporations. What about users? Things have changed. So you described this development that at first, you know, we were not very sophisticated, but we don't really talk much about consumers, users' responsibility when it comes to cybersecurity. What is your take on that? Like, I have a PhD student in Israel. I'm a professor from Israel who is writing his dissertation actually about liability of users, and maybe it's time to think about users. So what's your take about that? Well, um, from our perspective, that, that uh, that's a very challenging problem. I think there's sort of, uh, there's a, there's really two pieces to that. One is uh, there's user awareness and, and education so that people understand uh, what they're doing in cyberspace and the risks that they face. But secondly, there, the, the challenges in cyberspace can be overwhelming for the individual user. And so what are the things that uh, software vendors and ISPs and the, the creators of trusted transactions in cyberspace can do to help users realize the sort of health of their of their machine and their transaction, and so there's actually a lot of work going on now around a, a concept known as collective defense. What what can actually be done through uh, improving machine health, so that when you log on, for example, to complete a, a bank transaction, you know that the the bank is able to see on your browser that you've updated your firewall and that you have the latest virus signatures, and that you're 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 safe enough in their view for you to complete that transaction. And so there is, a, there is a beginning of thinking about what are the things, the collective actions that need to happen to better equip the consumer. Um, in other cases, there is the provision of, uh, of free antivirus. Several years ago, Microsoft just started providing AV. Anyone in the world can download it, and um, you, can, um, you can really cut down a huge amount of, of your attacks by just running updated AV and, 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 and a, a malware scanning tool once a month. You know, if I could just give you one quick, one quick thing to do. If there was one thing that I could ask of any of you, it's to patch. Because what we see is, is something like 97% of all vulnerabilities that, that hit people's PCs already have a patch available and it wasn't installed. And so we are, are constantly cleaning the same malware off of people's machines 
month after month after month. And if you go to, you know, we have a security intelligence report that will just show you the instance in the, in the millions of the same viruses that show up all the time. And so patch, and if you can, upgrade. Because just like you wouldn't want to drive that car from 1978, you know, you, you don't want to use legacy information and, and services that haven't been updated. But in that, that same light, in that same light, we have to move past this. Um, we're realizing that it doesn't work to put the onus on the user to, to affect cybersecurity. We have to move somewhere in, in an innovative technology space that allows uh, the user not to not have to take action to protect themselves. Well, but you can um, balance that with a right to opt out. I mean, customers have the ability to say, I reject taking your security, and that, that remains a challenge. But I'm, I'm not saying giving them an option for security. I'm saying giving them a different technology that doesn't have so many weaknesses. Yeah, that's exactly right. You've got to be careful in assigning responsibility and liability to, to individuals. If there's nothing that they can really do to solve the problem, uh, it, you're really removing the responsibility to solve the problem from the people who can solve it. Go back to the, the liability issue in the payment card world from the 1970s. Uh, you know, the people who can provide good security in the financial services world, they're, they're the financial services com companies. And so it made a lot of sense to put the responsibility on them for the unauthorized use and the liability for fraud. They were the ones who were able over time to innovate, and they did. I mean, they, they, they took the fraud rates from, you know, about 20 cents for every $100 to about 5 cents to every $100 over 20 years. Uh, if you'd left that responsibility on the individual cardholder, I think you'd still be stuck at the old level of security. So for, for both efficiency and equity reasons, you really want to be careful about where you put that liability. And think about who can innovate? Who can innovate to increase the level of security? Uh, and if it's the individual who can do something, then by all means think about that. But if it's other entities who've got the capacity uh, because of their role as network operators, for example, uh, who to innovate, it might be more sensible to place the responsibility uh, where the people can actually do something to fix the problem. Well, in looking at our technologies today, we have to embrace the fact that the technologies that we're using today aren't working. Antivirus is not working. If your antivirus is going off, you're already toast. Mm -hmm. um, the IDS is, you have to have a signature for that. If you know the signature, you're already toast. The firewalls aren't keeping people out. You have to know what to block, and if you know what to block, they're already in. I mean, we have to somehow embrace that, uh, a different kind of thinking, um, understanding attack patterns. If you've seen, a, if you've seen one uh, piece of malware exploit, I guarantee you there's more than, uh, more than 10 others playing along with that piece. So to think of this as a simplistic turn on your firewall and turn on your antivirus and patch and you'll all be good, we're giving our users really bad advice. I mean, okay. that's a and part. With that, I with, hang on, just with that. that, why don't we continue this? Obviously, uh, an important theme uh, afterwards. I know we have a couple more questions and only a few more minutes. So, currently, um, National Academy of Sciences, um, with a with a similarly uncontroversial question here, uh, which is, um, could you folks comment on any role the private sector might have in conducting 
offensive operations in cyberspace as part of its security measures. Law aside, I understand that there are lots of laws that prohibit that, and so I'm wondering if you comment about uh, about the desirability and utility, possible desirability and possible utility of that, assuming the law would let you do anything you want. In the RSA, any comment? We'll let you take that, Microsoft. Okay. Uh, we, we have a stated policy that, that we support information assurance. You know, the, the role of, of Microsoft in 160 countries around the world is to be able to provide service to all of them. And so our, our view is that if we don't promote openness and transparency, then we'll lose that trust. We have uh, programs that are involved uh, with, with governments that help increase trust and awareness. If we take a position that allows for offense rather than defense, then you destroy trust and you destroy your ability to sell to the world. So um, that, that's not necessarily a, an avenue that we would propose under, under any hypothetical legal regime. RSA? Or I, someone who used to work for RSA? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not what RSA does for a business. So. So it's, it's almost unfair to, to banty that around. Um, I, I, I'll say that, that, that that's, that's almost too tricky a question. I mean, if, if you wanted to say in a hypothetical world, would that make the world better? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that would make the world better. That's like saying if, if your kid comes home from school and someone's punched him in the nose, you're going to tell him to go punch him back in the nose? I mean, I don't know if that's really really where we're going. I'm not sure if that's what the private sector is meant to do. Um, just not a space that I'm necessarily comfortable living in. I'll make a comment. Uh, so I have no dog in this fight. I've not worked for any of these companies. Um, it strikes me that if I were a small niche player and not particularly concerned about a large number of existing clients, I could see perhaps developing some techniques for offensive uh, response coming from my clients as being a, an interesting marketing alternative. I don't know how it would fit legally. Um, I would want to consult with my lawyers about that, but I could see that as, I could potentially see that actually as having some appeal in some market segments. Well, for, for what it's worth, Conducting our the academy study on offensive operations, uh, which I do as part was funded by Microsoft, um, uh, we heard from a variety of players, uh, private sector players, uh, who would state for the record that they did not, they absolutely believed in the law, did not conduct offensive operations, and then uh, afterwards, uh, for a beer, over a beer, they would say, we still don't know anybody, we still don't do it, uh, we, we absolutely support the law, but. We know some people who don't. So. I, I, you know, what, what wasn't there, can't, can't no, talk to it, and that's, that's not what we would endorse. No, I understand. All I'm saying is that, for, for the record, firms say, we don't do it. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything about Microsoft in particular. Uh, but uh, at, at a low level, under the radar, what actually happens is unclear. If you have names, I'd want them. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. I think, can you hear? Yeah, um, my name is Katie Luna. I'm a student at OSU. Uh, I was wondering, 
we were talking about the relationship between public and private and the delicate nature of it, but how do you deal with it when you have people, like people in different countries feel differently about like, some people if they see something that pops up that says, oh, you should patch your computer, they will do it immediately, done. And then there'll be other people that will just ignore that forever, no matter what. And how do you, how do you find a balance and I'm sure the same is with governments and compliance and working with them. How do you find a balance between this huge range of, of like working towards some amorphous goal of cybersecurity? But part of the balance is really, it, it is in that sort of trust building and cultural change. So there's sort of long-term investments that you make in, um, uh, in working with government. So for example, in China, they don't use Windows Update. They, 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 they apply patches differently, which means that there's a lot of, there's a lot of infected machines there. In other parts of the world, um, uh, downloading a patch is not viewed as anything, is anything negative. In other parts of the world, uh, it's a cost because of the telecom structure. You're downloading pa packages to patch a, iTunes or, or Windows or, or whatever it is, that costs money. And so it's a disincentive, an economic disincentive for people not to patch. And so you have to kind of break those things into pieces and try to solve each one, whether it's uh, working with countries to build better um, telecom and internet policies so that it's easier to make those changes, or working with governments uh, to find alternate ways for, for them to, to understand and trust uh, patching systems. So it's, it really has to take a different approach depending on what the root cause of it is. With that and following, sorry, I'm following the, the, the role established by Peter at the, at the very, very beginning. It's 2.30 uh, right now, and I believe that we will reconvene in another 15 minutes. Would you join me in thanking our panelists?